Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Let's read starting in verse 12 to verse 17 and ask the Lord for his help and blessing this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear, hear. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, whom, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we, we want to recognize, Lord, your presence and that apart from you we can do nothing. So, Father, be with us this morning. Teach us your word. Open it to our understanding and change us forever to be more like your glorious Son. Thank you that your word and your spirit are powerful and good and that you abide with your people forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning we are coming to uh, two new concepts that Paul is going to introduce to us. That is the leading of the Spirit of God and sonship, what it means to be sons. And the two are linked together, as we'll see. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, on this theme of sonship, said this, It is one of the most glorious themes, not only of this chapter and of this epistle to the Romans, but of the whole of Scripture. There is nothing more wonderful than that we should come to the realization that we are sons of God. This teaching of sonship and also of adoption, as we will see as we get into verse 15 and beyond, is vitally important to us in our Christian lives. To understand what sonship is, is really the key to assurance of our salvation. And brothers and sisters, by way of reminder, that's the point of this whole chapter uh, that we're in, Romans chapter 8. It is not just about sanctification. The, the earlier chapters are not just about justification. Later, we're going to look at the theme of glorification. It's not just about glorification. It's about all of God's salvation as a package, all indissolubly linked together, so that if you have the first part, you of necessity have the last part and everything in between. And knowing that gives you great assurance. Great assurance that He will complete what He has begun in you. That good work. He will bring it to the end. And so we are learning in chapter 8 about the Holy Spirit of God. This is really His chapter. And the work that He's done for us that we might know that we are sons of God. So our focus today is really in understanding what it means to be a son as linked to this idea of the leading of the Spirit. And as with the texts leading up to this point, there have been many misunderstandings of these concepts, haven't there? The idea of the leading of the Spirit has been badly abused. The leading of the Spirit has been seen as something sporadic, something irregular, something off and on, something that might be likened to intuition that just pops up at a certain time without us reasoning or thinking. It's just there for us so that we can take a decision in any given point in time. Or when we are in need of supernatural direction because we've come to a crossroads in life. Questions like, which city should I live in? Which job should I take? Which person should I marry? And on and on all encircle 
this question of the leading of the Spirit. How is it that God leads His people? The leading of the Spirit is also has also been presented as that which keeps the children of God away from danger. When you are, in other words, being led from the, by the Spirit of God, He doesn't lead you into danger. He keeps you from harm. Is that true? The Holy Spirit has also, His leading has also been misunderstood as just being something general, a direction that He provides in the way that we should go by way of suggestion, almost as if He takes us to the trailhead of the path and leaves us there, simply pointing us in the direction we ought to go and then promises to meet us at the other end down the road. The leading of the Spirit has also been understood as only for a special class of believers, those who are called sons and not children. We're going to see those two words used in this passage of Scripture and in others as well and examine. Is that true? Is the leading of the Spirit a special privilege for only strong Christians reserved for the so-called sons of God? And so it's because of these abuses, these misunderstandings, that serious Christians have shied away, I think, altogether from this notion of the leading of the Spirit. They've, they've just kind of been hands-off. It's, it's been muddied with too much controversy, so they don't even want to touch it. But brothers and sisters, that is a wrong position to have and to hold. Because if it is true that to be led by the Spirit is to be a son of God, then it is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian to be led by the Spirit. We must understand and embrace this doctrine, not shy away from it, if we are, in fact, Christians. So, let's be prayerful as we enter into this text and ask the Lord for a right understanding that would honor Him and that would be true to His Word. This morning, I want to show you two basic points in our outline. We want to look at how the Spirit leads and really understand some key tenets of how the Spirit leads. And then from there, we want to understand, well, where is it that the Spirit leads us? Does He lead Christians differently in every case, or is there some pattern that can be observed among all Christians? Paul's going to define both of these concepts of the leading of the Spirit and sonship here in verse 14 of chapter 8. So let's look together at this. Romans 8, 14 For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So the first question that we need to ask is, who are the sons of God? Is everyone a son of God or a child of God? And again, by way of misunderstandings and abuses, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of men comes to the top of the list. Is that true? Do, do, is God really the father of every single person on the planet? And are we, is every person in the human race, a son of God? Paul answers that question right here. And he does it by, by providing a definition for the sons of God. And he says that they are those who are led by the Spirit. You could actually read verse 14 this way. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God... These and these only are the sons of God. In other words, this is a limiting statement that Paul is making. He's not saying that all are sons of God, but only those who are led by the Spirit. All sons are led by the Holy Spirit, not just some sons. And those who are not led by the Holy Spirit are, by definition, not sons. And they're not all led by the Holy Spirit because they don't all have the Holy Spirit. You have to have the Holy Spirit to be led by the Spirit. But what did we learn in Romans 8, 9, the second half of verse 9 there? Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. In other words, he doesn't belong to him. If you are in the Spirit, that means by definition that the Spirit dwells in you. And if the Spirit dwells in you, then he leads you. And you are a son. That is how the logic flows. Those who are in the flesh don't have the Holy Spirit and they cannot be the sons of God. You see, Paul is always contrasting two types of people and really two only. 
There are those who are in the flesh, and there are those who are in the Spirit. There are those who are dead and those who are alive. Those who are not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, and those who are subject to the law of God and love to be. And here in verse 14, he gives us a contrast with the sons of God and really coming up in verse 15, slaves of fear. Slaves of fear are contrasted with sons of God. Or listen to it the way that Paul puts it to the Ephesians in chapter 2 where he says this, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, this is Ephesians 2.2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So there's a contrast to the sons of God, the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. So there's the contrast. Children of wrath, children of disobedience, as compared with the children of God. Or as the Lord Jesus Christ contrasted it when he spoke with the Jews that so-called, who so-called believed in him in John chapter 8, he said this in John 8:44, "You are of your father the devil, and your and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it." So here's another contrast. The sons of God are contrasted with the sons of the devil. Not everyone is a son of God. Or take Christ speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 16, one of the most famous verses in all the Scripture, but as it leads into the next couple of verses, listen to this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we have the condemned and those who are not condemned. We are all born into this world condemned, friends. No one comes into this world neutral with regard to God and sin. We're born sinners linked back to the original guilt of Adam and Eve. We inherit their guilt. We inherit their sin. And because of that, we enter the world condemned and unbelieving. Unbelieving of God. Unbelieving of God's salvation whom He has revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who believe are not condemned. You see, so there are the sons of God and the sons of the devil There are the sons of God and the children of wrath. There are those who are condemned and those who are not condemned. Those are the two categories that divide all of Scripture. Jesus in John chapter 17 in His high priestly prayer, speaking to the Father but allowing His disciples to hear His words, said this, I pray for them, referring to His disciples. I do not pray for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You see, the special attention and subject of our Lord's prayer is the love gift of the Father to the Son. The sons of God. So there is no universal fatherhood of God and universal brotherhood of man. Those are false notions that have been invented by fleshly minds, unbelieving minds. The sons of God are those and only those who are led by the Spirit because they have the Spirit of God. They are alive. They are not condemned. They're the love gift of the Father. And they are those whom Jesus prays for. Secondly, we want to understand what it means to be led by the Spirit. What it means to be led by the Spirit. And I have several observations from the text about how the Spirit leads us that I want to share this morning. 
The word that Paul uses for led or to lead in verse 14 there is not the only word he could have used for the idea of guiding or leading. There's another word that, in fact, our Lord Jesus used in the upper room in John chapter 16 when he spoke of the Spirit's imminent coming. He said this in John 16, 13, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. It's the Greek word odieo. It's a different word from this one in Romans 8. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. This word for guide here in John 16 is really the idea of to point the way, to give guidance to And Paul could have used that word in Romans 8, but he chooses to use a much stronger word in the Greek. He uses the word aio, A-G-O, which means to lead by taking hold of. It means to lead by laying hold of. It's actually the word that was used of leading animals when The Lord Jesus, for example, sent his disciples away to find the donkey and her colt and to untie them. He said, lead them to me. And he used this word. It's a word that's also used of bringing people to a particular place or bringing people to other people. Like the the blind man of Jericho in Luke chapter 18 who was led to Jesus. Or even of Christ himself, it is said that he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. He was brought to that particular place, ushered by him, conducted by the Spirit of God. And later, before the crucifixion, Jesus Christ was led to Pilate. the same word used in each of these instances. One who is conducted to, brought to someone else or to a place by the laying hold of another. So there's a and not merely a directing of the Spirit that Paul wants us to see here, not just taking us to the trailhead and leaving us to keep with that analogy, but there's a strong element of control that is to be understood in this word, ayo. Just as the blind and, and the sick were not able to find Christ on their own and needed somebody to guide them every step of the way, so it is that we need the Spirit to lead us as well. He leads as a shepherd leads his sheep. John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They follow him because he leads, and he leads them constantly so that they can follow constantly. There's a strong element of control. That's the first thing to note. Secondly, It's important to recognize that although there is a strong element of control, he does not just pick us up and carry us the whole way. The blind man is still required to walk. Yes, he is led, but he is the one who is taking the steps, and he feels the terrain of the road step by step. He gets winded and exhausted and feels the tumultuousness of the journey. There needs to be an agreement from us to follow, right? The animal follows its master who leads it. But there is a difference between us and an animal, isn't there? Listen to Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, the Lord speaking. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. You see, animals must be harnessed. They must be forced to go the direction you want them to go because they don't have understanding. We are not animals, brothers and sisters. We are beloved sons of the Father who have understanding because He's changed our hearts to desire the Lord and to love His way. And so when He leads, we follow. That doesn't mean we, lead, we follow perfectly. We sin, and we sin all the time. But He's patiently leading us. And we, as the general pattern of our lives, are yielding to Him because we love Him. 
Next, I want you to notice something else, and that's, this is something that we can see from the grammar of the particular word led that is used. Paul uses the present passive form. This is back in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. He says, as many as are led, we are not leading, we are being led. And the sense is really, as many as are being led continuously. This is not a one-time action. This is not intermittent leading. This is a constant course of leading that the Spirit is doing for the sons. So there's a strong element of control. We are yielding to that volitionally with our will as we are following Him. This is a constant leading and following the good shepherd doesn't just start his sheep in the right direction and then meet them down the road. What, what would happen if he did that? And in between where he starts us and points us and when he meets us at the other end, many dangers meet us along the way. Wolves, they would devour us. So he doesn't allow that. He himself determines to journey with us every step of the way so that he can protect us, so that he can guide us and pull us back onto the path when we veer off so that He can feed us and satisfy us and cause us to lie down in His pastures. He is our shepherd and He leads us as one. You say, well, what about when we grieve the Spirit of God? Is He even with us in those times or does He leave us for a season? No, brothers and sisters. Even when we grieve Him, He is with us and He is grieving and therefore we are grieving because He's grieving in us. If you belong to Him, you will feel the grieving of the Spirit when you disobey Him. Calling you to repent. Calling you to turn. And to have your joy restored in Him. So He is with us on the path. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. This, that wonderful promise just comes home in power to us as we think about this idea of the leading of the Spirit. What about the path that the Spirit leads us on? Does He promise to always lead us away from danger and suffering as some would espouse? Well, if we just look at the context of where we are here in verse 13, back one verse of Romans 8, He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you are actively killing sin, by the power and agency of the Holy Spirit in your life, you will live. So actually, it's the Spirit of God who is engaging us in this conflict. He's not leading us away from danger. He's leading us into the danger. It's the same message that we have in Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says that the flesh lusts against the Spirit. It sets itself against the Spirit. It's our enemy. And the Spirit sets itself against the flesh. These two are contrary to one another. They're contrary to one another. There is a war that we are engaged with in ourselves, and it's the Spirit of God who is taking up the arms and leading us into battle. The primary path, brothers and sisters, we need to remember this. The primary path that the Spirit of God leads us on is a road of suffering, danger, persecution and tribulation. If our master's road was one of suffering, one of danger, one of persecution, should ours be any different? But we have to remember that the leading of the Spirit is a reign of grace, as Paul calls it. A reign of grace. He is not leading us away from danger. He actually leads us into the danger in order that he would teach us dependence on God. In order that he would show himself to be a mighty deliverer. So that we call on the name of the Lord and he shows himself as a deliverer for us. That we would praise him. That we would thank him. That we would become more like him as he teaches us to depend on him and less on ourselves. I was reminded of Psalm 23 as I was thinking about shepherding and this idea of leading. Such a wonderful, beloved psalm, I know by many of us. Psalm 23, just thinking about this idea of how the Lord leads. Listen to this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Brothers and sisters, does he lead us in danger at all times? What about this? He leads us beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yes, the Lord means for us to be refreshed, and his leading involves our refreshing. And I want you to see verse 4 as well. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Sometimes the walk is beside still waters. You've taken a walk by the river, heard its bubbling, the cool breeze in the trees, the, the serenity that comes to the soul as you take that kind of an experience. That's how the Lord leads. And that leading also comes through the valleys where they're described as the shadow of death. Not death itself, but the shadow of death, that which purpose is to cause fear within us, but ultimately cannot harm us. The psalmist David here says, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. That's the key. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The the rod and the staff, the, the tools of the shepherd to number his sheep, to guide his sheep, to protect his sheep from enemies, those are the comforts that I have. When I veer off the course, you bring me back, you correct me. That may not feel good, but it helps me to know that you're my shepherd and I'm your sheep. I belong to you. And that's the comfort when I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, whatever that might be for you, whichever point that might take place in your life, your darkness, your dark hours. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What kind of a table is that? Well, he says, you anoint my head with oil. That was a custom that was reserved for guests at feasts. This is a feast he's talking about. You prepare a feast table before me, a a lavish table with all the fullness you could imagine right in the presence of my enemies. I don't know about you, but generally, I'm not able to eat when I'm upset and frightened, anxious, fearful. God's promise is, I will allow you to sit and dine with me in the midst of whatever adversity I bring you into. That's the power of God leading you, the power of God with you. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. What a promise. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hmm. It's interesting. We think about traveling as a shepherd with sheep, on a journey, on a path, changing scenery, sometimes by calm water, sometimes into deep valleys. David summarizes that as I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, the Lord promises to be a sanctuary for his people wherever they are. Wherever they are. He is a sanctuary. He dwells in you. He's in your heart. So no matter where you are in life, he's there leading you helping you, guiding you. You are in his house no matter where you are if you belong to him and if he leads you by the Spirit. You also might think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Were they led away from the fiery furnace or were they led directly into it where a fourth, one like the Son of God, would be there protecting them, not allowing even any hair on their body to be singed, not even the smell of smoke to come on them. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It's amazing grace. That's the superabounding grace, the reign of grace that is at work in you and in me if you are in Christ this morning. So, he doesn't lead us away from danger. No, rather he leads us right through it, victoriously to the other side, delivering his people time and time again that we would praise him. And then fifthly, 
If you just consider the fact that he's talking about leading us, doesn't that imply weakness on our part? It implies that we are weak in ourselves. We need someone to lead us. You see, brothers and sisters, we've been brought to an understanding that we are weak in and of ourselves because of sin, right? We've been learning that we have this body of death that we carry with us. That the body is dead because of sin or as good as dead because of sin. And we've come to understand, Lord, we need your help. We need you to lead us. If you don't lead us, we are destined for destruction. And that path of destruction is one of leading ourselves. That's the world. The world leads themselves, don't they? They hate, they repudiate the idea that God would lead them. That would take away their control, their autonomy, their right and desire to live their own life, their own way, for their own pleasure. But the children of God, the sons of God, love to be led. Yes, it's true that our spirits have been brought to life. We are alive, but we have no power without the Holy Spirit's leading ministry in our lives. That's that resurrection power that we learned about in Romans chapter 8. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's the resurrection power that we need, this leading power. We are not able to conduct ourselves anywhere spiritually, even though we are new creatures in Christ with new hearts and new spirits. His leading is indispensable. And it's not just a privilege for a special class of Christians. That was that other misunderstanding. It's not just for those who are strong in the faith. It's for those who need to be led, who are weak by definition. See, the distinction that some make between sons and children is not a distinction that Paul makes in Romans chapter 8. All are All who are sons are also children, and vice versa. The children are the sons. You see that in Romans 8. um, He uses the word children in verse 16 and 17. The children of God, the children of God. The reason Paul is using sons here is he is emphasizing something in particular. He's emphasizing the full rights and privileges that sons have as heirs of their father, those who inherit That's why he's calling out sons. Those who have the authority of their father. Those who carry the family name. Those who share, now mark this, in his nature. Who have his character. We're going to develop that more next time as we talk more about sonship and more about the adoption of sons. Today I really want the focus just to be this idea of leading as the definer for sonship. So he's talking about sons, and and you'll note, and some people might even object to say, well, why doesn't he say daughters? Well, for the reasons I just gave, that sons are those who inherit. They're the ones with the full rights and privileges in this culture and in this day. But daughters, make no mistake, are most certainly included in the sons of God. Daughters are included. Listen to Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Call them all, my sons and my daughters, from every part of the earth. These are the children of God. Why does he use the term children here? Well, it's because he's, it's a term of affection. It's a term that shows that we are dear to the Lord. I want you to notice in verse 17, though, he says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God. So children and sons are equal. They're equivalent terms because the children inherit just like the sons inherit. Some people have made a distinction with Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 also talks about children and sons. If you just look at the first few verses of Galatians chapter 4, it reads like this. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, <clears throat> does not differ at all from a slave, though he, is a, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. 
Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So, there is a distinction here between children and sons. But the distinction is this. Paul uses the word for infant when he says children here. In Romans 8, when he says children, he's talking about the true children, those who are beloved of the Father. But here he's talking about the age of the child. And he uses the word for infant. As long as the child is an infant, he doesn't differ at all from a slave. Why? Because though he is as much an heir, an inheritor, as the fully fully grown adult son, the infant doesn't realize his inheritance yet. So it's a matter of his own perception of himself. That's the difference that Paul is pointing out between child and son in Galatians 4. But back in Romans 8, he makes no such distinction. They're equivalent terms. The sons are the children. The children are the sons. And all are led by the Spirit. So what have we seen so far? We've seen that Paul is really using language in Romans 8 to say that we are led by the Spirit, meaning we are under his control, under his governance. He doesn't merely direct us where to go. He's actively involved in each of the steps that we take. He's guiding us in that sense. And though he controls us, he doesn't merely pick us up and carry us the whole way. There are times when he picks up his ewe lambs and he carries them. But by and large, he leads us, and the blind are still required to walk. His leading is also not sporadic or intermittent, it's constant. His path is through dangers, toils, and snares, that he might glorify himself. And every son or child of God is weak in himself and needs, desperately needs, the leading of the Spirit. So now that we've seen something of how the Spirit leads, the next question is, where does he lead? Where? Is his leading different for every son? Or is there some common pattern that we can observe? And the short answer is really this. Yes, there are nuances to how the Spirit of God will lead each of us in our lives. None of us walks exactly the same path as each other. But there is most definitely a pattern that is common to all who are sons. So I want to just divide this into two basic things to keep it easy to remember. Where does the Spirit lead? Well, first, He leads us down. What do I mean by that? Look with me at Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. This was our corporate reading this morning. And in Isaiah 40, God is comforting His people. That's the theme of the whole chapter. Um, We've looked at this once before briefly, but there's something else I'd like to point out today within this chapter we didn't talk about last time. Uh, This chapter is written a century and a half before Israel is exiled to Babylon. Isaiah is writing about their exile and actually looking beyond the exile to when they are going to return to the land of Israel. He says, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended That her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Double meaning an exact measure for her sins. They've been paid for in full. And so her warfare is ended. God's war against them, his wrath against them, has been fulfilled. And then verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? Excuse me, and I said is the asterisk there. I said, what shall I cry? And here's what he said for... Isaiah to cry. 
all flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So we might read a text like that, and I think that we would all be quick to point out that there really, there's a contrast that he's making here between the brevity of life for men, for the flesh, who are likened to grass and to flowers which wither and fade, as compared with the eternal standing and life of God whose word stands forever. And we kind of move on. But I think that there's a spiritual lesson here that we ought not to overlook. And it really came to my attention this week in verse 7 in particular, and I have my brother Charles Spurgeon to thank for this. Verse 7, the grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. You remember that the Spirit of God is described as a wind. The word for spirit is the word for breath or wind. Um, He was that wind and breath that was hovering over the face of the deep at the very beginning of the creation account, who then spoke, he breathed his word and brought life from nothing. I think that the key contrast that we need to see here is the glory of man or the glory of the flesh compared with the glory of God. If you want to kind of highlight the key idea in this passage here, it is this, verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. That's the point. God is going to make his glory known. He's revealing his glory. And the question is, who sees that glory? It's tied in with verse 7. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath, the Spirit of the Lord, blows upon it. What is the Spirit of God doing when He blows upon the grass, but He's causing it to wither and He causes the flower to die? You see? The glory of man is the pride of man. It's the mountain and the hill that is lifted up from the earth as described in verse 4. That's the arrogance and the pride of man that God hates. And so God is going to bring down the lofty, the proud, the arrogant to the ground. How does he do that? He changes our view of ourselves from being a pleasant meadow filled with beautiful grass and flowers to being a barren, desolate wasteland. In other words, he shows us our sinfulness And he does that by blowing on our grass and our flower. His wind is like a scorching wind in that instance, bringing death and an awareness that we are dead. That's how the glory of God is able to be revealed. We must first be brought low from our high lofty position in order to see him high and lifted up. He first brings us down He humbles us. He destroys our self-righteousness. He exposes our sinfulness. This is all the preparatory work of the Spirit as He withers the glory of man in our own eyes. You remember John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, who we know directly fulfills this prophecy. He was preaching out in the wilderness of Judea. Such a wonderful illustration. The Lord uses object lessons, if you haven't seen in Scripture, many times to illustrate a spiritual truth. John the Baptist is out in the middle of the wilderness of Judea, representing the the wilderness, the barrenness of the human heart, and really of the status of Israel at the time when John the Baptist and Jesus came on the scene, an apostate nation who had really departed from the Lord, who were absorbed in their own self-righteousness and who were um, devouring widows' houses where the priesthood was corrupted. And John's message is repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That word repent is that scorching wind that the Lord sends through the voice of John the Baptist. To all who have ears to hear, turn away from your 
self-righteousness. Turn away from your foolishness and your rebellion against God. Look what he says to the Pharisees, to those who were the religious elites in their day. He calls them a brood of vipers in verse 7. <laughs> who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? The imagery is of snakes fleeing to the water because of a fire. The fire is bringing them to the water. And he says, don't think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't trust in your pedigree just because you're ethnic Jews as if that has some value to save your soul, to give you standing with God. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And then he says, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He is not mincing his words. You Pharisees and anyone else who trusts in themselves, even to the, a small measure, this message is for you. Repent. The axe of God's judgment is laid to the root. It is about to cut you down and throw you into the fire. This is the message of the scorching, of bringing us low, of humbling man. So he first has to lay fair, excuse me, lay bare the meadows, the fair meadows of our self-righteousness. Show us who we really are. Cause us to mourn over our sin. And isn't that exactly what Paul has been doing in this whole letter of Romans? I mean, how does he start chapters 1, 2, and 3? It's all about talking about the sinfulness of man. He starts talking about the sinfulness of the Gentiles, the nations of the world, how they are under the wrath of God. Then he moves to the Jews and how they are no better. They're also under the wrath of God because the very things that they preach against, they themselves do. In chapter 3, he says, all have sinned. All are under wrath. All are under sin. There is none righteous. No, not, not one. There's not one who understands. Not one who seeks after God. And then in verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. That's the point. And all the world may become guilty before God. He is bringing us to become quiet. To stop speaking about our own righteousness and to be ashamed for our sin. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You think that you can keep the law in some measure? It only damns you. It only curses you even more. Because every time you disobey the law, you are heaping up God's wrath against yourself for the day of wrath. He's painting them into the corner. He's painting us into a corner. He's trapping us in the net of God's Word. And then, once we're at our lowest, once we've seen the scorching of our own beautiful fair land, now He's ready to bring us up. Now He's ready to bring us up. So he first brings us down, and then what does he say? But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. There's no righteousness that you can earn on your own. But there is a righteousness available to you if you will receive it. It's the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. It's available to all who will believe. Now the healing can begin. Now that God has wounded us sufficiently by showing us our true condition, now He can begin to bind us up and heal us. And that is the pattern of Scripture everywhere we look. That is the, the, the central truth of Scripture. He wounds us and then He heals us. We see that at the creation even, at first, there's darkness on the face of the deep. There's nothing. There's chaos. And then the light of new creation comes. Order is, is developed. Or at the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, there's first fear and shame once they sin. And then the good news of the gospel comes. The serpent is going to, the seed of the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but her son will crush his head. Or Noah, when he is first closed by God into the ark, sealed as in a tomb. 
such, such that the rains of judgment are beginning to pour down on him. But then the ark begins to rise and float on the surface of the water. First comes the death and then the life. We must go down before we are brought up. If you are a Christian this morning, you have first seen your sin and mourned for your sin. Darkness has been on the face of the deep of your heart and you've seen it as such. And then the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of the gospel has shone in your hearts. Charles Spurgeon said this, It is the work of the Spirit of God to convince men of sin. And until they are convinced of sin, they will never be led to seek the righteousness that God gives by Jesus Christ. Never. So, brothers and sisters, have you been convinced by your sinfulness? Has the Spirit of God convinced you of that? To the point where you mourn for your sin. You cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Have you come to see that all your glory, your flower, your grass, is as withered out in the field because the Spirit of God is blown on your heart? And do you mourn over that? Can you say with Paul, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, refuse, garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Can you say that? Is that your testimony too? You would gladly trade all of your credentials, your accomplishments, your experience, your knowledge in the world for the knowledge of Christ, the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Are you willing to make that trade? Have you made that trade? See, if you don't see your sin as open, festering sores in the sight of God, if you haven't seen yourself as unclean and undone before a holy God, you will never come to Christ no matter what you say. That's a testimony that is in the heart. That's not in the mouth only. If you still cling to some vestige of goodness in yourself uh, and you're not willing to let that go, you will never come to the great physician for healing because you're not sick enough Spurgeon again said, I am persuaded that wherever there is a real work of grace in any soul, it begins with a pulling down. The Holy Spirit does not build on the old foundation. Wood, hay, and stubble will not do for him to build upon. He will come as the fire and cause all of nature's proud idols to blaze. He will break our bows, cut our spears apart, and burn our chariots with fire. When every sandy foundation is gone, and not until then... He will lay in our souls the great stone foundation chosen by God and precious. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Spirit leads. He first leads us down, and then He leads us up again. He brings down every mountain and hill, and then He brings up every valley. Why? So that the ground would be level, smooth, and clear for the King to traverse the highway of your heart for your whole life. He first crucifies us with Christ that he might raise us to newness of life. He's leading us, in other words, to salvation. You see that? That's what he's been saying all along. He's just putting a label on it now so we can understand what's been happening to us. And that includes every component of your life. Every component. I mean, that's the exhortation that Paul gave us in Romans 6 when he said, uh, For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Every part of you is to be dedicated, given to the Lord God for righteousness' sake, for purposes of righteousness and no longer for sin. 
you're able to do that if you're in Christ. That's the leading of the Spirit and His power at work in you. All who are led by the Spirit are sons. I, I think we're clear on that. You know if you're a son this morning, if the Spirit has led you from death to life, that's regeneration. You're a new creation in Christ. He's given you a new spirit and a new heart. You were in darkness. You are now in light. How do you know that? Because you now hear with spiritual ears, you see with spiritual eyes, and you can understand the Word of God with a spiritual heart. Christ has been presented to you after the wind of God has blown over your field and withered your grass. And you've looked to Him as your Savior, your physician, who alone can provide healing, and you've embraced Him by faith. You've been justified through faith in His blood shed for you and me. The Word has been illuminated to your understanding. You've been brought to life. And now that you have this new life in Christ and a new heart, you find that your affections are changing, aren't they? You used to love your sin. You used to excuse your sin. Now you hate your sin increasingly every day as you walk in Him. You were at war with God, but now you love Him and you want to serve Him. Guess who led you to believe the truth? Guess who led you to love the truth? It's the Spirit. And now the Spirit is leading you to holiness. That's your sanctification, separating you more and more from your sin. You had no power to deal with sin before because you were a slave. Now you have the Spirit of God dwelling in your heart with the resurrection power of Christ, causing you to kill your sin daily as you walk in Him and set your mind on Him. And all of this because the Spirit is preparing us for final glorification. The whole point of His leading is not just for holiness. That is key. But that leads to a final glorification where we will drop this body of flesh once and for all and He will give us a new body that is fashioned like unto His glorious body on that last day. The Spirit is leading. Do you see the sequence? Do you see how He's led you to life in Christ? How He will, if He's done that, He will continue to lead you now as sons to holiness. And if He's doing that, He will continue and at that final day leads you to glorification of the body. Brothers and sisters, He's leading us home. That's the glorious ministry of the leading of the Holy Spirit. There's more to come next week as we get into verse 15 and sonship, but I pray the Lord will apply His Word to our hearts today and help us to walk trusting Him this week as He leads us as a shepherd. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the tender, compassionate leading of your Spirit who never leaves us nor forsakes us, who is all wise and leads us into paths that we don't understand, but Father, that you know all too well are exactly what we need in order to be purged of our sin, in order to be reliant and dependent on you 100%. Father, thank you that there is no one like you, as we saw in Isaiah 40 this morning. You are high and lifted up. What image can anyone make with their hands or even conceive of in their minds that is adequate for you? There is none. You are the Lord. All things are in your hand. You own all things. You have all wisdom to use all things in the perfect measure and with the precision that you alone can bring to cause the exact intended result that you mean. You are a master farmer, Lord, who knows how to blow over the fields and wither the grass and the glory of man in order to make room for the glory of God to be seen, in order to plant and sow your incorruptible seed in us, which abides forever, that we might bear your fruit, a fruit that will abide, a fruit that will give glory to your name. Oh, Lord, help us to walk in your way. Forgive us, Lord, for our foolishness, 
Forgive us, Lord, for turning away from you this last week and turning to ourselves in pity, pride, anger, all those things, Lord, which you know. Forgive us. Help us, Lord. Help us this week to be strengthened in your spirit as we meditate on these truths. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.